News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So this morning, we're going to be talking about this provincial pandemic recovery plan and how it's going to assist, in particular, some struggling industries. But right now, we're going to talk about an industry that's actually not struggling right now. It's kind of refreshing to hear, actually. It's uh, Liz Elliott, who is joining us, is a principal at Mercer Canada. They are a consulting firm, and they have done a survey that shows which particular sector is thriving. Liz, thank you for joining us. Hello, good morning. So which sector is it? Well, (laughs) BC will be happy to hear that, of course, it is the high-tech sector, But in amongst that, what's interesting is the high-tech jobs are getting increased pay at higher rates than other jobs, even for those who are holding those particular high-tech jobs within other industries that may be struggling a bit more. So the tech sector is still going full speed ahead. Has it really, has it been impacted by the pandemic? You know, the high-tech sector has been thriving in BC for the last few years. But we've really seen a lot of growth there through the HR Tech Group, which is an association that uh, represents the HR um, professionals of the high-tech industry. And so that group has been growing very quickly. And tech seems to really have not taken any, any uh, halt as COVID has hit, whereas other industries we're seeing were hit much harder. So as an example of that, we look at uh, salary increase budgets that come out this time of year and that support the planning of companies going into 2021. And the tech industry sits at about 3%, and they have for the last two years. But what's interesting is even last year, they took over energy for that front-runner spot of the highest salary increase budget. And this year, in contrast, some of the more hard-hit industries are retail and, of course, energy, where those salary increase budgets have fallen down to about 1%. Interesting. So what is it that you think is driving this, Liz? Is it the work from home that it, like, I know that was a boon to a lot of tech companies because they didn't have to worry about, you know, hiring people in different countries and visas and all that kind of stuff? Well, I think there's a few things at play here. One is just the full shift to increased technology adoption. I think that's what started this wave for sure. But what we see is that the COVID has, or COVID impact has not slowed it down by any means and in a lot of cases it's increased demand so companies that may have been distributing through retails have now gone online and that's all fueled by some of the jobs that we're seeing receiving the highest pay the other thing that's impacting it is the demand for skills and the skills not necessarily being available at the rates that we're looking to hire them and so there's a lot of competition for these skills right now so they're still hiring so it sounds like that's kind of covid proof at this point well, certainly a, a, a winner amongst amongst the industries, given the economy, that's for sure, yes. Right. So do you just see future growth in that particular industry? Yes. I would not say that we're anticipating that the technology industry will be slowing down. Um, I think that as the, you know, culture adapts, there's a lot of disruption happening here about human behavior, how we're shopping, how we're getting to work, uh, how we're connecting with our business partners and our colleagues, and all of that is right now very heavily fueled by by technology, but also other industries like the energy industry and mining, which are other surveys that are within my portfolio, they are really in an, an, an upward adoption of technology for efficiencies within their operations and processes, and that is also fueling high tech. Is there enough of a labor pool, would you say, for people to get those jobs, or do we need to kind of turn our attention and focus on that? I'd say it's a fight right now. Uh, yeah, there's not enough talent necessarily. Um, so there's some key jobs that are showing up as being the most difficult to recruit jobs. For two years in a row, that's been listed from this HR Tech Association. So this is organizations who hire tech talent out of British Columbia. And most difficult to hire is software development and DevOps engineers, interestingly followed by leadership. Really? That is so interesting because it's been a few years now where we know, as you pointed out, that the high-tech industry has been thriving. What, where do you think the disconnect is between getting people trained up for these jobs? 
well, I think that we're, the industry is moving faster than a lot of the education associations have been able to attract talent and bring talent through. Um, but we have heard that even some organizations have started to make moves in training their own people. Interesting. Uh, the other thing is the specificity of the skills. There is an interesting long, long list of very um, technical, specific skills based on uh, different operating systems. Right. And so I think trying to create, you know, move to a place where maybe some of the more skills are on demand are consistently trained um, is probably still happening and maybe in the future. But there's a lot of differentiation between uh, the talent that we're seeing within British Columbia because at this point, as I've mentioned, the HR tech group has become cross-industry. It's cross-industry organizations fighting for tech talent. Mm -hmm. But within that list, uh, it's everywhere from um, media and entertainment uh, to, you know, uh, communications to energy, like I mentioned, and manufacturing. Right. Oh, so interesting. Liz, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. That's Liz Elliott, a principal at Mercer Canada. They are a consulting firm and they've done a survey that shows the tech sector is really thriving amidst the pandemic, still hiring, still booming, still going strong. Uh, so clearly an area of focus should be for a lot of people who are looking for jobs right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Our plan introduces a new tax credit that encourages businesses to hire more people or increase salaries for those that they've kept on staff. And a new recovery grant for small businesses and medium-sized businesses will ensure that they have the financial lifeline they need to get through this pandemic. So that's Premier John Horgan yesterday announcing the Provincial Pandemic Recovery Plan that will likely also be the blueprint for the NDP for re-election. But is that plan enough for an industry that's struggling to recover in the next couple of years? And that is the tourism industry hardest hit by the pandemic. So we're joined now by President and CEO of the BC Hotel Association, Ingrid Jarrett, for her thoughts on this. Ingrid, thank you for being here. Good morning, Sumi. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, first of all, how are things going in the hotel industry right now, particularly in Metro Vancouver? What kind of occupancy rate are we seeing? Oh, goodness. So Vancouver, unfortunately, is seeing the lowest occupancy in the province. And um, I think Victoria is uh, a close second. And, you know, really, that's because all the markets that uh, historically have fed demand in, in Vancouver are currently closed. So that's events and sports and cruise and international travel group. You know, you think about that uh, enormous and beautiful conference center that, that cost a lot of money to build and it's sitting empty. And we still have 12 hotels that are closed and have been unable to open. And we have one large hotel, the Trump Tower, which has uh, claimed bankruptcy. So with so all of that, yep. Vancouver, it's a it's a very uh, serious situation. Metro Vancouver, actually, which uh, includes Richmond as well. So um, uh, when we think about what we need, we need uh, the government to work with us to make sure that we're looking at opportunities to bring business back to Vancouver. And, um, you know, certainly the hotels there are operating safely, hosting, you know, small meetings of 50 people or less and their conference centers that were built for very often hundreds, if not a thousand people or more. So given what you heard yesterday in the pandemic recovery plan, then for the hotel industry, uh, do, is that enough? Oh, it's definitely not enough. I think it's the first time that we've seen or heard uh, this government uh, put the tourism industry in their announcement. So we're very happy about that. Uh, we're disappointed we didn't get uh, allocated more funds for recovery, but we also heard clearly that uh, this government is uh, planning a phased announcement approach. So Premier Horgan yesterday certainly said that this is the first of a series of relief measures. I think for the downtown hotels uh, in Vancouver and Richmond, uh, there, there was nothing that it sounded like they were eligible for. But, you know, we don't have the details of the announcements for them. I think for the industry as a whole, there's some measures that certainly will provide them some relief. Until we know the details of those measures, it's difficult to say how many businesses 
we'll be able to access the different relief funds and, and certainly the grant. Mm-hmm. Um, but leaving out the large properties is uh, is really uh, disappointing because seeing as how they have the lowest occupancy, they, they actually need it the most. So do you feel that there is more coming, that this isn't the kind of be-all, end-all, just this plan to help out the industry? Yeah, you know, um, there was also an announcement of a uh, task force for the industry uh, that the minister will be putting together. And Minister Baer certainly yesterday referenced, uh, and so did Premier Horgan, that there is $50 million that that task force will be able to determine how it's allocated, who needs it the most. And so, you know, there is an opportunity to have a hand in recovery for uh, for who we know needs it the most and how we make sure that um, that, that is uh, delivered. And then I think the other thing is the small business uh, relief measure. When we find out what the details of the application and qualification, mm-hmm. I think it's um, a, a 50% uh, reduction in revenue year over year. I don't know if that's month by month. Uh, we don't know the application time frame, but we do know that we actually received funds specifically mm-hmm. uh, at, with a framework that they have indicated that they put in place. So, you know, that that really was good news um, uh, for the industry. Obviously, we asked for significantly more money, but there also are other initiatives that potentially we could receive funding for um, with uh, some of the different parts of money, like innovation right. and technology and training. You know, we'd really love to hold our workforce by uh, getting back to business. Uh, and we're hoping that we can do that uh, over the next sort of six months with government and hand-in-hand with the Minister of Health to make sure that we do that We do that safely. You mentioned that Vancouver and Victoria have some of the lowest occupancy rates. Does that mean that elsewhere in the province that people have responded to kind of vacationing in their own backyard? Uh, I'm, I wouldn't say vacationing in your own backyard, Simi. What I would say is, is that we have to, uh, resort destinations in BC that historically have been sort of the favoured spots of British Columbians, and that would be the Okanagan Valley, Tofino, Uculet, and then the Mid-Island, sort of Courtney, uh, Comox, or Courtney, Qualicum, sort of through there, Parksville. And those areas, just like they always have, had sauce, quite strong summer business. But uh, the rest of the province remained at a very low rate, although there is a little bit of work going on uh, in the north right now. And there is uh, some, there also was some uh, resurgence of movie and film. So, uh, you know, as, as that industry picks up again, and I understand that uh, the government has been working with that sector to regenerate it for the province, there are sort of pockets mm-hmm. of uh, hotels or individual hotels that are doing okay. But, you know, two months in the summer, or even if it was three months of September is a respectable month, that does not make up for the balance of the eight or nine months where you're sitting in between 20 and 30% occupancy. There's no question year over year, the entire province is seeing more than a 50% drop. And in Metro Vancouver, we're seeing even more than that up to 80%. Still a lot of work to do. Ingrid, thank you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. That's Ingrid Jarrett, president and CEO of the BC Hotel Association, Glad that the industry was singled out yesterday with the pandemic recovery plan, but is still hoping for even more support given how bad it is. Lowest occupancy rates right now in Vancouver, uh, Victoria right behind. If you would like to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about back to school. The BC Teachers Federation is taking the Ministry of Education to the Labour Relations Board, and they're doing this in an attempt to force changes in the province's back to school plan. So this comes in a letter to BCTF members that's been obtained by Global News. And in that letter, BCTF President Terry Mooring said the ministry is taking advantage of teachers' professionalism and the care they feel for their students. She said the Federation's lawyers have been analyzing BC's legislative framework to determine if there is any kind of legal avenue to force changes to the inequities of working conditions and the, quote, confusing changes in government messages and documents. 
And as such, they have filed an application with the Labor Relations Board to deal with this situation. Now, we know the BCTF has been raising concerns about this for weeks, and we'll see now what the next steps are going to be. Now, for some kids returning to school, the virus is, you know, one of many concerns that they face. One of the reasons why there was a big push to get kids back in school was to be able to get an eye on kids, kids who needed help, kids who needed food. Food inequity continues to be a problem in our province for so many students. Emily Ann King is the co-founder and vice president of Backpack Buddies. You've probably heard of them. It's a program that supplies meals through schools to more than 3,000 kids every week. And she spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about their program, which aims to give hungry kids one less thing to worry about. Can you tell me about Backpack Buddies? What does the program do? So Backpack Buddies is designed to address the weekend hunger gap that children face. So what we mean by that is there's a huge percentage of children in our communities that rely on school meal programs Monday through Friday. So what we try to do is make sure that we're feeding kids on Saturdays and Sundays so that they come to school Monday morning ready to learn. I imagine that's a program like many others that has been affected by the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. We've been impacted in almost every aspect of of what we do. It was really um, sort of like someone said to us, take everything you know about everything you've done for the last eight years and throw it out the window, but do the same thing and do it on a bigger scale now. And would you say that because of the pandemic, we've actually seen more of a need for programs like this? Yeah, absolutely. The need, it honestly, uh, it it grew overnight. Um, We immediately started to see more requests from new communities, new districts, uh, different schools, all reaching out to us. And also within that, you know, the 80 plus schools that we were already supporting across the province were asking for more supports. There was more newly vulnerable children in the schools. And we know, um, and research is indicating that that is only going to increase as time goes on. And one aspect of the pandemic that I was surprised to read had affected you The panic buying phenomenon has affected you guys and your ability to purchase supplies? Yeah, that was one of the biggest things um, or one of the first things that we felt was sort of the effects of that panic buying. You know, we are purchasing um, huge, huge amounts of food at one time, you know, 20, 30,000 meals at a time. And those are big orders to be fulfilled. And when the panic buying started to kind of take place, our suppliers were indicating that they weren't sure if they were going to be able to to fulfill our orders. And so we had to really diversify where we were acquiring food from and started bringing food, if you can believe it, from the East Coast. We even got an order coming from Victoria at one point. So food was going from the mainland to the island and then back here. And it was... Um, it's been a, a constant sort of worry in our minds, but we have been lucky and that we've been able to acquire all the food that we need to sustain our program and to even grow it. And getting that food to people, I imagine, is difficult with social distancing and everything else that you have to consider as well. Yeah, there's a whole host of new things with kids being back in school that we have to to navigate in terms of safety for our deliveries because the lion's share of our program is delivered directly into schools and you know we give it we give it to the schools and they hand it out on Friday afternoon for kids to take home and so you know, I'm sure you've heard things like parents aren't allowed on campuses right now, they can't go inside and so there's this there's a whole other layer of things that we're we're having to navigate logistically but you know, we just remain really committed to finding the ways to do this because it's just too important not to. Absolutely. So for anyone who is interested in helping you guys out, how can they get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So backpackbuddies.ca, tons of information about our program and what we do and lots of different ways to, to get involved and engage with us. Well, hey, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Nikki. That's our Nikki Reitmeyer talking with Emily Ann King, co-founder and vice president of Backpack Buddies. And again, they provide so much help to kids. Food for 3,000 kids every week in school. Now, for more information, you can go to their website, backpackbuddies.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking about and getting reaction about the provincial pandemic recovery plan, which was announced yesterday by Finance Minister Carol James and Premier John Horgan. Let's get some more reaction. Is this going to be enough to get the province back on the road to prosperity? Joining us now is the President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, Bridget Anderson. She also serves as a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. Bridget, thanks for being back with us. 
Good morning, Simi. So were there task force recommendations that you saw in the plan yesterday? Yeah, you know, there were, we made over 70 recommendations in our economic recovery plan as other members of the task force made recommendations as well. And we did see some of those recommendations in the government's plan. But let's be clear, this has been a really devastating time for business. 8,000 Greater Vancouver businesses have ceased operations just from February to April alone. 150,000 jobs have been lost since February And we're now six months into this pandemic and we're entering a really critical time. So some of the positives, we did see some measures around the PST rebate on machinery and equipment, investments in broadband, healthcare workers and childcare, the business recovery grant. But, you know, this plan required bold vision and we remain really concerned about the viability of private sector businesses going into this tough time in the fall and the winter. So would you say this plan didn't have enough of a bold vision? Well, the bold vision that's required is that urgent help that is needed now. Some of these measures are really more in the medium uh, term and some of the longer term. And so when we look at how businesses are doing now, we know even if you look at the restaurant business in the last couple of weeks have had to make some big changes, which is, uh, you know, the domino effect around um, jobs and certainly for nightclubs and for, for banquet halls. So we're really concerned that going into this period where we're seeing cases on the rise, there could be a second wave, we're going into the flu season, that it could be a really, really tough time for business, especially with seeing some of the federal government supports uh, taper off. So while there were some good measures in this and some positive measures, you know, there is room to be more bold um, going forward and for for measures that would really spur investment in our region and to address some of the capital projects that need to be done as well. Okay, like what kind of measures do you think would make a difference? Well, when we were looking at our plan, we made, as I said, over 70 recommendations, and we wanted to see action to improve the investment climate, for example. We also wanted to see easing of the regulatory burden to make it easier for businesses to operate, and a great example of that is what was done with businesses around patios and delivery of wine with food, for example. Very simple things that could be done. We didn't see that in the plan. We didn't see um, around investment capital projects like the Massey Tunnel. And, and, and you know, granted, uh, Minister James and the Premier both said that this is a first step and there's more to come. And I don't want to be clear. There were some positive steps in here. The business recovery grant is an important step for small and medium businesses. But looking to see what those conditions are, and it wasn't clear in the plan. So, you know, we've, it's been reported that businesses are going to need to show a 50% revenue decline and submit a plan to show they're a viable business. So just looking to see what are those conditions, Mm -hmm. what's the threshold, what does it mean for businesses now? Don't make it more difficult for them at a time where they're really trying to survive. And is that the thing? Do you think maybe there's you want to wait and see what happens here? There wasn't really a lot for the tourism sector either. There's a little bit. We heard from the CEO of the BC Hotel Association. But do you think that's a sector that also needs more focus? Oh, the tourism sector, there's no question, it is suffering. And they did submit a plan um, for considerable help. So there was some help in this plan, but it fell short of what they were asking for. And we're going into the, the tough time for tourism anyway. You know, the fall and the winter aren't the times where the tourism sector really do that well. I mean, it's the spring and summer where they can make most of their money. So it is a really, really difficult time for the tourism sector. And I know that there will be a task force, but again, a task force, slows down the help that could be coming to that sector. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important that uh, that sector in particular, and Vancouver relies on on tourism, to to look at what kind of help could be offered to that sector in a more immediate way. Okay, so then what are you going to be looking for over the next couple of months, Bridget? There's two things I'm really going to be looking at, Simi. One is around the conditions and the threshold on the business recovery grant, which I just mentioned. So really understanding how businesses can access that and what would be required, as well on that payroll tax credit. So we like the intent that, you know, it would prompt businesses to hire back staff, but we really need to know more about how those funds are going to flow. You know, is it based on pre-pandemic payrolls or is it on a go-forward basis? And how quickly can can businesses access this funding? So it's digging into these details. And, you know, I know that the plan was just came out yesterday. So we're all scrambling to try and find those details. And so like it was at the beginning of the pandemic, when these uh, support measures came out from all levels of government, it often takes several days for the details to come out. So over that time, we're really going to be digging in to see exactly what that support could look like for particularly small and medium businesses. Well, then we'll be talking to you again. Bridget, thank you. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Simi. (laughs) That's Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Also, 
also a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. They saw some of their recommendations in that plan, but as Bridget pointed out, they still want to see how things shake out and really go through it in more detail uh, to see just how much help is going to be provided there. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking about and getting reaction about the provincial pandemic recovery plan, which was announced yesterday by Finance Minister Carol James and Premier John Horgan. Let's get some more reaction. Is this going to be enough to get the province back on the road to prosperity? Joining us now is the President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, Bridget Anderson. She also serves as a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. Bridget, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. So were there task force recommendations that you saw in the plan yesterday? Yeah, you know, there were, we made over 70 recommendations in our economic recovery plan as other members of the task force made recommendations as well. And we did see some of those recommendations in the government's plan. But let's be clear, this has been a really devastating time for business. 8,000 Greater Vancouver businesses have ceased operations just from February to April alone. 150,000 jobs have been lost since February, and we're now six months into this pandemic, and we're entering a really critical time. So some of the positives, we did see some measures around the PST rebate on machinery and equipment, investments in broadband, healthcare workers, and childcare, the business recovery grant. But, you know, this plan required bold vision, and we remain really concerned about the viability of private sector businesses going into this tough time in the fall and the winter. So would you say this plan didn't have enough of a bold vision? Well, the bold vision that's required is that urgent help that is needed now. Some of these measures are really more in the medium uh, term and some of the longer term. And so when we look at how businesses are doing now, we know even if you look at the restaurant business in the last couple of weeks have had to make some big changes, which is, uh, you know, the domino effect around um, jobs and certainly for nightclubs and for, for banquet halls. So we're really concerned that going into this period where we're seeing cases on the rise, there could be a second wave, we're going into the flu season, that it could be a really, really tough time for business, especially with seeing some of the federal government supports uh, taper off. So while there were some good measures in this and some positive measures, you know, there is room to be more bold um, going forward and for for measures that would really spur investment in our region and to address some of the capital projects that need to be done as well. Okay, like what kind of measures do you think would make a difference? Well, when we were looking at our plan, we made, as I said, over 70 recommendations, and we wanted to see action to improve the investment climate, for example. We also wanted to see easing of the regulatory burden to make it easier for businesses to operate, and a great example of that is what was done with businesses around patios and delivery of wine with food, for example. Very simple things that could be done. We didn't see that in the plan. We didn't see um, around investment in capital projects like the Massey Tunnel. And, and, and you know, granted, uh, Minister James and the Premier both said that this is a first step and there's more to come. And I don't want to be clear. There were some positive steps in here. The business recovery grant is an important step for small and medium businesses. But looking to see what those conditions are, and it wasn't clear in the plan. So, you know, we've, it's been reported that businesses are going to need to show a 50% revenue decline and submit a plan to show they're a viable business. So just looking to see what are those conditions, Mm -hmm. what's the threshold, what does it mean for businesses now? Don't make it more difficult for them at a time where they're really trying to survive. And is that the thing? Do you think maybe there's, you want to wait and see what happens here? There wasn't really a lot for the tourism sector either. There's a little bit. We heard from the CEO of the BC Hotel Association, but do you think that's a sector that also needs more focus? Oh, the tourism sector, there's no question, it is suffering. And they did submit a plan um, for considerable help. So there was some help in this plan, but it fell short of what they were asking for. And we're going into the, the tough time for tourism anyway. You know, the fall and the winter aren't the times where the tourism sector really do that well. I mean, it's the spring and summer where they can make most of their money. So it is a really, really difficult time for the tourism sector. And I know that there will be a task force, but again, a task force slows down the help that could be coming to that sector. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important that uh, that sector in particular, and Vancouver relies on on tourism, to, to look at what kind of help could be offered to that sector in a more immediate way. Okay, so then what are you going to be looking for over the next couple of months, Bridget? There's two things I'm really going to be looking at, Cindy. One is around the conditions and the threshold on the business recovery grant, which I just mentioned. So really understanding how businesses can access that and what would be required. 
as well on that payroll tax credit. So we like the intent that, you know, it would prompt businesses to hire back staff, but we really need to know more about how those funds are going to flow. You know, is it based on pre-pandemic payrolls or is it on a go-forward basis? And how quickly can, can businesses access this funding? So it's digging into these details. And, you know, I know that the plan was just came out yesterday, so we're all scrambling to try and find those details. And so like it was at the beginning of the pandemic when these uh, support measures came out from all levels of government, it often takes several days for the details to right. come out. So over that time, we're really going to be digging in to see exactly what that support could look like for particularly small and medium businesses. Well, then we'll be talking to you again. Bridget, thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Timmy. <laughs> That's Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Also a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. They saw some of their recommendations in that plan, but as Bridget pointed out, they still want to see how things shake out and really go through it in more detail uh, to see just how much help is going to be provided there. This is Mornings with Simi. I want to update you now on a case that you may remember from back in 2016. Do you recall the murder of 13-year-old Letitia Reimer in Abbotsford? Now, this was a 13-year-old girl who was stabbed and killed at her high school in Abbotsford. That probably brings it all back for you right there. The person responsible was Gabriel Klein. He was found guilty of second-degree murder back in March. Now, his sentencing is supposed to be getting underway, but now there is a twist, and it has become very upsetting to the family of Letitia Reimer. We're going to tell you why. Joining us now is Dave Teixeira, the spokesperson for the family of Letitia Reimer. Dave, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Simi. Appreciate your attention to this. Well, what happened? Well, we're still trying to work through it. Um, in the nor- n- normal course of things, uh, we, we sorry, let me just back up a little bit. Next week on the 23rd and 24th was supposed to be the victim impact statements and the the sentencing. So the, you know, while Gabriel Klein's been found guilty, we now need to go through this these next couple of stages and uh, then this would be wrapped up at least for about 10 years. Instead, this week, uh, in the normal course of getting prepared for that hearing, Crown Counsel, as they put it, were blindsided by the defense counsel, Martin Peters, uh, and and his client, Gabriel Klein, who then said, well, you know what, we're now going to argue uh, an NCR, a not criminally responsible defense. And you have to remember that they had the opportunity to do that over about two years worth of hearings and 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 court time and they declined to do so uh mostly because you know as crown counsel had said that that he was basically faking the the different symptoms so now we were supposed to have the victim impact and sentencing in june that was delayed due to covid until september and then apparently just a few days ago was when they decided they're going to bring this new line of defense into play and uh, yet again, just highlights the imbalance in the system where uh, those who are accused can manipulate and re-victimize the victims and the family just has to sit back and let this happen at this point. So it's very upsetting. And I understand that the lawyer for Klein is the one who said his client has changed his mind. So can that happen? Can, how, much, how much of a process do we have to go through here? Well, it's, 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 it's a very confusing system that we have because it's almost uh, as if there's two parallel systems. One is the criminal justice system, and the other is the NCR, the not criminally responsible system. Uh, um, over the years, as I've worked with other families, most notably Darcy Clark and family on the Alan Shorn board murders from 2008, what we've seen time and time again is that the accused is allowed to change his um, his mind. They're able to change dates of hearings, change the length of hearings, decide just not to show up, and that cancels things. Yet the families get no say and no real uh, time to heal. So we thought on this system, because it's in the criminal justice side of things, that that would not be the case. What we are hearing from other people within uh, the Crown Office and other legal folks is this is the first time in Canadian history that this has happened, where just before sentencing, that uh, an accused has decided, let me try this NCR defense. Right. Really what's happening here, Simi, is Gabriel Klein does not want to be held accountable for his crimes. He murdered a young girl and severely injured another, uh, another young girl back in uh, 2016. He's going to jail. He is not going to be popular in jail. This is uh, right. a very small, slight person, and he just doesn't want to face his, the consequences of his crimes. Now, Dave, is it possible, though, that they can try this and it could immediately be shut down? So, as you said, it's unprecedented, and the judge may say, you've had your chance to do this already. 
Yeah, my, my hope is that's exactly what happens here. Um, now, <laughs> over the uh, 10 years I've been involved with NCR cases, I always, I, you know, I always go with a positive attitude. I look at the, the uh, what I think is an obvious result, and uh, I'm about 80% correct. So I'm not sure how this will, will go. And also, I'm not sure of the process of, of what will happen here. We also have to look at Gabriel Klein has a history of showing up in court, acting up, and then the the uh, hearings are shut down so we could even have a situation where he shows up acts up right and then okay well we have to delay this and because of everything going on with covid and so on we could be looking at a further delay so my hope is that uh, the justice will shut this down and then we get right on to victim impact statements we get on to sentencing and gabriel klein can serve the rightful sentence for for the murder that he committed all right we'll check in with you next week and see how it's going dave thank you Thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. That is Dave Teixeira, spokesperson for the family of Letitia Reimer, 13 years old. She was uh, murdered back in, what, uh, 2016 in her high school in Abbotsford. And now the sentencing phase of the person who was found guilty, that is Gabriel Klein, was supposed to start next week. We're going to keep you posted on how that goes. This is Mornings with Simi. We all want a little respite from this COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of people looking forward to Halloween. Is it possible to do it? I think it still is, as long as we maybe incorporate what this man in Ohio has come up with. Nikki Reitmeyer joins us now to tell us all about it. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. How clever is this? I love it. So this guy in Ohio named Andrew, he grabs one of those big cardboard rolls, I guess something bigger than what you get inside of wrapping paper. And he fixed it to the railing that's along his balcony that goes down the stairs. He strapped it on there with zap straps. Prior to that, he spray painted it orange. And then he decorated it with some fun Halloween colored lights. And he said, this is my six foot candy shoot. <laughs> so his It's plan, genius. It is. His plan is that he's going to wear gloves. He's going to wear a mask on Halloween. And then he's going to use tongs to pick up candy and then put it in the Halloween shoot, fire the candy down the six foot shoot that runs along the, the balcony on his, or the railing on his stairwell, and then into the bags of the trick or treaters who come to his house. Give this man a MacArthur Genius Grant because this is, this is the thing that could, <laughs> if you have front steps, that's key to this, right? Because a lot of people might not. They live in a rancher or one level, whatever. But this would work for me at my house and I thought this was genius. I was trying to think of how I could do this for my apartment. I don't get to participate, of course, in the trick-or-treating as things are currently. I'm up on the fourth floor, so it's only the ground units that get to have the kids come by, which is always so much fun to watch. But I was thinking, you know, could I set one of these up from the fourth floor balcony? <laughs> You're going to hurt somebody down the street. <laughs> I was worried about the velocity of the candy. <laughs> All you can hear is, ow, 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 as the kids go walking by. Ow. <laughs> Knock a kid backwards onto his, onto his butt. You know, but yeah, I like so I this. I'm not sure if it'll work. This because it's, it's ingenious. It works for people who do have, the, have those front steps and can do this. But you know, we've heard a lot of communities in the United States are just saying no, no trick or treating happening. Dr. Bonnie Henry told us that you know we're not going to cancel Halloween. We can find a way to do this. I think we can because if, if everybody's in a costume, which involves a mask, then I think we should be okay. I'm reminded of when I lived in Alberta for a few years and Halloween was always so funny because the kids would have their costumes on, of course, but it was always so cold for Halloween and it almost always snowed or there was at least frost on the ground or fog in the air that kids would have to bundle up from head to toe when they went out trick-or-treating. Yeah. So both the parents and the kids, exactly, they're wearing, you know, the full snowsuit on top of their Iron Man costume and they've got their face wrapped up in a scarf anyways and half of them are wearing ski goggles because their little eyes are getting so cold walking from door to door. So you didn't even know what those kids were dressed up as anyways. They were right? basically had their full faces covered <laughs> just to protect themselves from the cold. So I don't know if that'll really be a problem to the rest of Canada. I think they'll probably be able to trick-or-treat pretty well. You know what, uh, the best costume in my family that made the rounds, right? Because, you know, you pass them around and stuff was years ago, like right after Return of the Jedi came out, my aunt actually handmade an Ewok costume. But it was like zipper, head to toe, fur, the whole thing. Every kid in our family has since worn that costume because it's perfect. You don't need to put on a jacket or anything. You just zip right up, right? That is so cute. Can I I borrow it? Is it still in the family? Um, You might be a little too tall for it. Ewoks are little people. 
A little people, and Nikki. To be fair, I've put on a few pounds during the quarantine, so <laughs> haven't we all? That yeah. almost sounds like a different segment altogether. So I love the candy shoot idea. We should definitely get people doing this because we want to socially distance, but we still want to hand out treats, right, on Halloween? Yes, exactly. I, I love it. And if anybody has any ingenious ideas for how they are going to be safely welcoming trick-or-treaters to their home this Halloween, please, Simi, I think I can give out your email yes. on this, Simi at cknw.com. Love it. Send us your ideas. Send us your pictures because I think that we could get some really genius ideas going here. I think so, too. Thanks so much, Nikki. So, yes, will Thanks. a candy shoot be the thing that saves Halloween in some communities? We will see. You can send me your thoughts or your suggestions for ways to make Halloween safer for some trick-or-treating. Some, it's not going to work everywhere, but I think we can do some things to make it more plausible. This is Mornings with Simi. Barring any regulatory obstacles, MEC, as we know it, is about to change. Going from a co-op where a $5 membership earns you the right to shop and vote for a board of directors to potentially becoming a privately owned business acquired by the L.A.-based investment firm Kingswood Capital Management. That is Global News reporter Brad McLeod. It is, and it took, I think, a lot of people by surprise to hear that Mountain Equipment Co-op is about to be bought up by a U.S. hedge fund. That's kind of the end of the word co-op and the whole name, right? So we wanted to talk about MEC as a brand. And the reason why people are so upset about this is because of the brand and what it has meant to them. Joining us now is Dr. Saul Klein, the dean of the Peter B. Gustafson School of Business at the University of Victoria. And he's also the person behind the annual brand trust report that evaluates how Canadians feel about prominent businesses. Dr. Klein, thanks for being back with us. Thanks. It's great to be with you again. Now, according to your ratings that you do every year, I mean, there's not much higher than MEC when it comes to a brand trust index, is there? Absolutely not. I mean, we've been doing this study for the last five years, and MEC routinely comes in either as number one or number two. Um, There's generally not much difference there. And this is out of more than 300 brands in Canada. So there is something about the brand that has really built the, the trust amongst Canadians. And do you think that's why we're seeing this kind of outpouring of people quite upset about this? Yeah, and I think it's obviously compounded by the fact that, mem- that uh, MEC is a co-op. And members of MEC in particular feel a little bit betrayed by the way this, uh, the whole situation has unfolded. So how damaging could this be then, do you think, to them uh, if they, they're no longer going to be that co-op? That's the big question, and it's something that certainly we're going to be watching closely. If we look at you know, what's driven the brand and the, the kind of trust that's been built up, it's been really been based on three fundamental factors. Um, they provide amazing service, and the staff in the stores know the products, they've used the products, they can relate to their core outdoor enthusiast uh, market segment. Secondly, they, their products are good. I mean, they're reliable, they um, stand behind them. If anybody has any problems with them, Mech has always done a great job. And then thirdly, and this is the one where I think we're going to be watching quite closely, Mech has been a real leader in Canada in terms of its social social responsibility and positioning around sustainability. Uh, their products are sourced in ethical ways. They disclose where they're, who their suppliers are. They act in ways that really have a very positive impact in our society. And as part of our trust index, that's become an increasingly important aspect. Now, the big question, obviously, is we've got new owners are they going to change the, the way MEC operates? Are they going to change that positioning? Will they have that same focus on sustainability and social responsibility and essentially pursuing the values of the members as opposed to trying to maximize uh, the profits, which admittedly MEC was in financial trouble and needed to do something. But will they lose their existing core customers while they're trying to restructure? How important is it to us, Dr. Klein, to when we when we make those purchases, when we go to a certain business, to feel good about that business? Increasingly so. I mean, it's not that we're going to trade off bad service or poor products because the brand stands for values that we align with. But increasingly, 
as the competitive market develops, it's harder and harder for firms to differentiate themselves on the basis of their service or even their products. And ultimately, what's left for consumers to, to make their decisions on, and they're increasingly doing so, is the values. And they want to support organizations, or we want to support organizations whose values align with, with our own. Right. And MEC has been very clear in doing that. Um, uh, yeah, let's take it as an example. A couple of years ago, there was a big issue facing MEC when one of their suppliers in the U.S. was ac- acquired by a gun manufacturer. Um, MEC immediately became, came under pressure, and their decision was to stop do, doing business with that supplier because they did not agree with the, 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 the policies of the right. parent company of that supplier. So they've made those kinds of decisions that have appealed to their, their customers and certainly the values of their members. So this is so ironic then, isn't it, Dr. Klein, that this company was, you would think, bought prim- not like for one of the reasons being that they have a good, valuable brand, but in the, mm-hmm. in the buying act, you may be diminishing that brand. That's the big risk, and that's something that we're going to be watching very carefully. And it, it's twofold. One, I think there is a risk to the trust that comes from the brand being sold to, to a foreign company, particularly one, a private equity firm. And secondly, there is that, that loss that happens when the co-op structure disappears because the assets of MEC, and MEC currently stands for Mountain Equipment Co-op. In future, the new owners will just be labeling it MEC and MEC will presumably stand for something else, but it will not be a co-op. And that's a big part of the value proposition yeah. right now. Dr. Klein, thank you for so, so much for talking to us about this. My pleasure, as always. Thank you. That's Dr. Saul Klein. He is Dean of the uh, School of Business at the University of Victoria, talking about the value of MEC if it's not a co-op anymore. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, maybe you're looking for something to do this weekend. Well, check out this next item that we're going to be talking about. There's a fascinating film that is back at the Rio Theatre, and it's back by popular demand. It's called The Walrus and the Whistleblower, and we want to talk more about this this morning. This is the film that documents one of the most notable stories of wildlife advocacy in Canadian history. The filmmaker is Natalie Bibeau, and she joins us to talk more about it. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, your story is fascinating. Thank you for being here. This movie is getting a lot of attention. That must be very gratifying. It is. It is. After a long road, it's exactly what uh, what I needed. Now, when I was watching and checking out parts of it, it's so this is about marine land and the whole controversy over, uh, you know, animals kept in captivity. Do you feel like the mood of the public has really changed on this? I think it has, uh, and, and I think it actually had its uh, most pronounced change while I was following the film. By the time I started uh, shooting, things had already started to shift. There was a new law that had been proposed to ban the captivity of whales and dolphins. Uh, the story of Phil Demers, of course, and his fight with Marineland had already been made public through various media exposés. But it was really in the last couple of years where I noticed uh, the most fundamental shift at the mainstream level, I think it isn't just activists and animal rights organizations that are talking about this now. I think it's it's uh, gotten into the zeitgeist. Yeah, let's talk about the whistleblower in your film. Tell us about him. Well, his name is uh, Phil, and he grew up in a small town called Welland, Ontario, which is where I also grew up just outside of Niagara Falls. And he was a kid who didn't really know what to do with uh, the rest of his life after high school. And he had a um, sort of a windy path until he landed as a 22-year-old kid as an animal trainer at Marineland. And that's when his life changed. Uh, He found uh, what he described as his dream job. And he also developed this incredible relationship with a baby walrus named Smooshy, who'd been wild caught in Russia and had been transported to Marine Line to spend the rest of her days there. And he became quite a sensation. Uh, this relationship with Smooshy caught uh, the uh, imagination of the public and he became famous for it. And, um, and then a few years later, he became famous for being its most vocal critic. And things really, when he became a vocal critic, it wasn't just that he was speaking out. In what ways did did he get kind of retaliated against? 
Well, he left uh, under difficult circumstances. Uh, he says he was at the end of his rope. He had uh, had these wonderful years at Marine Line in the early days, uh, you know, which he describes as days of ignorance. And then as um, the idea of captivity started to wear on him and he started to see the effects on the animals and particularly on Smooshy, he steps out of his job. He eventually speaks to the media. It causes this huge story to travel all over the world. And then within a few months, uh, he was sued by Marineland, along with several other people and members of the media for um, uh, d- discussing this topic and, and the allegations that he and actually 15 other employees had at the time. Right. So and clearly the movie is very much Phil's story and the, the kind of emotional toll that it takes on him, isn't it? It is. And that was a, a deliberate choice that I made because although, you know, at the heart of it is, of course, Phil's quest to save Smooshy, um, and then, which is, of course, a, a stranger than fiction tale that, that you really couldn't have written. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's strange to have a, a story in a documentary that is uh, stronger than any narrative I'd seen in a fiction film. Um, but it, what is really at the uh, the base of all this is that uh, it's a story about the defense of the vulnerable, uh, freedom of expression, what we're willing to go through, and the hills that we're willing to die on to get our message across. And using Phil as a vehicle to describe this, I thought, was um, a powerful way to connect with the audience at a, at a personal level because he is a charismatic, difficult, and volatile character but his fight is emblematic of um, a larger uh, evolution in our relationship with animals right now. It really is. Whatever happened to Smooshy? Well, that's quite a thing. Uh, the doc was uh, first aired on CBC on May 28th. And then a couple of days after, we learned that she had uh, given birth. So she's been at Marine Line since about 2004 and had never gotten pregnant before. And within a few days of this film making it out into the world, we learned that she was now a mother herself. And uh, we have no other details uh, since then. So Phil is trying to find out how she's doing, if she's still alive, if the baby's alive. And Marine Line hasn't released any uh, any information since June. So we don't know much about um, how she's doing. And with the closure of all these kinds of places because of the pandemic, has that made it more difficult to track and find out how some of these animals are doing? It's an excellent point. I think it has. Uh, I think uh, transparency has always been a challenge uh, with these types of institutions. I would say, um, particularly in, in the case of uh, Marine Land, you know, I tried to have conversations with them many times throughout the making of this film, but um since COVID, I think there are fewer eyes on the animals, uh, which has caused concern for a lot of activists. And of course, the money that they're losing, and you know, a lot of people are celebrating, let's say, the the forced change that these facilities are are going through at the moment, a change of identity, trying to reimagine their business models, as Vancouver Aquarium is doing. But um, at the end of the day, we're we're all a bit concerned about the, the the money that's not coming in because they they do need those funds to take care of the animals. So there's a real push and pull and and a tension at the moment. Uh, that will be interesting to see how it all uh, evolves. It certainly will be. Now, Natalie, where can people find out more about the movie? Uh, they can uh, go to the uh, website for the film, uh, walrusandwhistleblower.com, and they can, of course, follow us on social media. Uh, WWB Doc uh, is the name of the handle. And um, we are uh, playing at, at the Rio on Sunday, so I'd love for people to come out and watch it and, uh, and tell me what you think. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much. And good luck. That's Natalie Bibeau, filmmaker. It's called The Walrus and the Whistleblower, and you can check that out at the Rio Theatre this Sunday.